Hello, I'm Hannah Pearson. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Ewan Clucky, the founder of Tripseed. So, let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. Today, I'll be chatting to Ewan Clucky, the founder of Tripseed, a tour operator based in Thailand. So you might have noticed, but I'm flying solo today. Lucky Gary is off in Paris, um, but I've got the pleasure anyhow of chatting with Ewan. So Ewan, how are you today? Um, where are you? And how's the start of 2023 been for you so far? Hi, Hannah. Um, yeah, I'm absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Uh, 2023 has, has got off to a great start. Uh, especially business-wise, anyway, and uh, we've had some trouble at home. My, my five-year-old broke her arm and, and spent a couple of days in hospital, so we're we're, we're dealing with that in the family. Uh, but other than that, the year's off to a good start. Oh gosh, I can't imagine. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm, but good. At least the business is going well. At least one part. Um, so you know, you've, you've got a super interesting background and, you know, let's go back to the beginning and I'd love for you to tell us all a little bit more about yourself. Um, you seem to have very strong ties with Thailand. How did that come about? Sure. So, I mean, I, I first came out here in 2006. Um, I was on a round-the-world trip backpacking, as many do, um, and Thailand actually ended up being my first destination. Um, I was originally supposed to be here for about 10 days, which quickly got extended into one month, then two months, then three months, um, until I ended up here about two years in total before I actually continued on my journey. Um, so everything about Thailand kind of struck me from when I arrived, from the weather to the food to the friendliness of the people. Um, and it, it very quickly sort of felt like home for me. Um, eventually, I did go back to the UK um, for a period. I did my bachelor's degree and my master's degrees. Um, but it was all sort of with the long-term goal of, of coming back to Thailand on a per more permanent basis. Um, so li after I finished my master's, um, literally the next day after handing in my thesis, I was I was on the flight back over here to begin my job with one of the big DMCs here. And then fast forward to now, and I've been here almost the majority of my life. So um, my wife is Thai. I've got two beautiful daughters that are half Thai, half British. And we've built our home here. And I very much consider it home now. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, that, I love that. You, you came for just, uh, <laughs> ended up staying for two years. I think that that, that, that sums up uh, your, your love for Southeast Asia then. <laughs> um, so like you said, you know, you ended up working at a big DMC and you've actually headed up digital marketing for some of the larger tour operators in the region. So you've got big names like Exo Travel, like Discover on your CV. How have you seen digital marketing change for tour operators um, before the pandemic and during it as well? How's that changed? I, I think with relation to the pandemic, it's unfortunately been a bit of a case of one step forward, three steps back. Um, employees with digital skills are uh, pretty much among the first to find more rewarding employment um, by moving into other industries. Um, and in many cases, got going to digital agencies um, where they weren't having to suffer like reduced salaries and a lack of job security. You know, when the pandemic struck, there were so many redundancies being made for people that I think a lot of people were looking for something a little more secure outside of travel. Um, and strong digital skills in Thailand are in limited supply as it is um, and hard to find. Um, I think it would be fair to say that many of the travel businesses here don't find digital marketing of a key importance. Um, I think that's largely because of the lack of expertise within the businesses. 
but also because they, I think a lot of the time they've been burned by bad advice in the past. Like the digital marketing area in Thailand um, can be full of a lot of cowboys um, in this area in particular. And that's not driven results for these companies in the past. So I, I think that there's definitely a risk aversion um, due to that um, in, in, in going more strongly into digital marketing. That's interesting. And were you more digital marketing towards uh, consumers or was it more trade? Because I know both XO and Discover, they both do B2B and B2C, don't they? Um, yeah, I, I mean, most of the time it's it's looking at how we can transition to, to more B2B. Um, I, I think from the past, you know, when, when previously when Discover was Buffalo Tours, um, there was there was obviously a lot of um, B2C digital activities going on there. Um, and, and part of my job when I came in was transitioning that to be uh, more focused on, on the travel trade, you know, really switching that from, from quite a, a direct sort of sales funnel. So, that, you know, that, that was basically almost starting from scratch um, with, what, with what was being done there. Um, and, and likewise with EXO, um, my job was a little more, I'd say, varied at EXO. Um, I wasn't purely doing digital stuff. I was doing some copywriting, um, you know, some print design, uh, other marketing areas as well. Um, but I, I think it's much the same in that their, their target market is B2B, as as with most of the uh, the DMCs in Thailand. Um, but there's always going to be B2C traffic that, that finds you on the internet or, you know, you pop up for them in Google search and things like that. Um, especially, you know, if you're doing your job right and, and trying to rank in there, in Google and in the search results, then, um, you know, people are going to stumble on you naturally. Yeah, absolutely. And how's that, how's the travel trade expectation for digital marketing changed? Because, you know, I remember when it's just smaller, if, if you get an email newsletter, maybe you're lucky. Um, but, you know, or is the travel trade a lot more demanding now, would you say, when it, when it comes to um, digital marketing and their expectations? That's a tough one. I'd say it could be quite varied. Um, during during the pandemic, I think a lot of it was just trying to get information to people. People were just needed that that to know what was going on on the ground. Um, so that was you know that that was very much focused on getting newsletters out and getting quick social posts out to to sort of your, your private communities and things like that. Um, and it was it was just trying to be the first to get them the most reliable information as possible. Um, before that. Um, and, and, you know, what we'll transition back to now that now that things are calming down and, and turning, you know, go, returning to normal a bit, um, it's, it's very much focused on lead generation. So, you know, trying to trying to help travel trade with the as a researching destinations and potential suppliers and ground operations um, giving them the knowledge that they need to to make the most informed decisions and create the best trips for their clients. Um, and, and through that, then um, if, if they're seeing that you've got that expertise and that knowledge um, and you can see that they're interacting with, you know, whether it's your, your social media or your newsletter um, or your, your, your paid ads, then, you know, y- you can nurture those leads and see, who, see where the warm leads are and then pass those on to the sales team. So that's, that's what should be happening. But, you know, the pandemic threw that all up in the air and, and, and you know, we'll eventually transition back to it, but I think it's going to take some time. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. Like when you said that there, there was that kind of brain drain um, almost, wasn't there, from from travel companies and all of those people who did have very transferable skills like digital marketing and so on, 
they, they could easily find jobs somewhere else. And there was always that, well, why, why am I going to take half a salary when I can go earn a full salary um, yeah. somewhere else? So it's just that building back, isn't it? That, that reskilling and upskilling and, and getting up to date with latest tech trends as well. Absolutely. So back to uh, Tripseed after our little segue into uh, digital marketing. Um, so one year ago, you decided to take a leap and start your own tour operations, Tripseed. Um, so talk us through that process. You know, it was seems like quite a brave time to be starting a new travel business. <laughs> yeah, brave is, is one way to describe it, for sure. Um, some people thought we were mad. Um, I think for us, it was the right time. Um, conversations about Tripseed had begun back in 2019, so before the pandemic even happened. Um, we, you know, we believed there was a strong case and a need for a DMC that, that took a more honest and ethical approach to doing business. One of the biggest issues with the current crop of DMCs in Thailand is it's a very extractive industry. Um, there's very few that have um, any legitimate local ownership. Uh, so all of that revenue, those profits, are being offshore to other tax jurisdictions with very little getting back into the destinations where travelers are visiting um, or back into Thailand, back into the communities. Uh, to us, that doesn't feel, that didn't feel like a very sustainable model. And it can also be quite exploitative in the way that there are such large discrepancies between local labor and expat labor. Um, you know, for instance, there's no financial protections in place for casual workers um, like freelance guides or drivers. So in the case of tour cancellations, it can be uh, quite rare for them to actually receive any money for those trips. Uh, and in many times, it could be kept by the businesses as additional profit. Um, and you can also see this in the lack of senior management positions filled by local employees, um, the huge discrepancies in salaries, um, and also simple things like annual leave, where expats are given 20 days annual leave off the bat when they get the job. And local employees are forced to start on the legally required minimum, which is five days, and then earn an extra day for every year that they work with a company. So it takes them 15 years to get the same level of equity in their annual leave as, as expat colleagues. Um, so, you know, we didn't feel like this was the right way to do business. And, and we think that a, a business can be more ethical um, in the way it conducts itself and still make a profit. And, and, and you know, we've, we've set out to sort of prove um, ourselves on that one. Wow, 15 years to catch up with annual leave. That's just... Um... Yeah, crazy, really, really crazy. And I think, like you were saying, there's just such a discrepancy actually between, yeah, those, those local terms and expat terms. And uh, I think that's something that I, I really admire, I think, about uh, you and Tripseed and um, really putting this idea of having that local ownership as, as something that's really key for your whole company. Um, so tell us a little bit more about Tripseed in general. What is it that you um, focus on? Which segments? Uh, which destinations? Uh, yeah, we very much focus on FIT tailor-made travel, um, and we're primarily focused on the four-star market and above. Um, the main markets that we operate in at the moment are largely the UK and Germany, uh, but we've got a, or should I say German-speaking markets, um, but we've got a growing presence in the US as well. Our core business is all directed towards the B2B travel trade. Um, so operating, handling all the ground operations for travel agents and tour operators that sell into those markets. Um, and we specialize really in luxury travel and family travel, community-based tourism. And more recently, as you know, we've, we've sort of stepped into accessible travel um, and trying to make Thailand a more inclusive place to visit for all travelers. 
Um, we do have a small portion of business in the Thai market for domestic travel and outbound travel, and that is um, targeting direct travelers inside of Thailand. But far and large, for all of our international markets, it is um, B2B travel trade. And are you seeing that start to pick up now from, from UK and, and the German-speaking markets in terms of inquiries, in terms of bookings? I mean, yes. Uh, the answer is definitely yes for us. But whether that translates to the wider market, I think it's impossible for us to say because we're a new business. So for us, everything is growth. Um, it's difficult to say, you know, is this anything like what we, what we, we would have experienced previous to the pandemic? You know, I don't think anyone can know that because we launched right in the thick of it. So we're seeing things take off like an absolute rocket, which is which is brilliant. But I don't know how to put that in comparable terms to to you know prior to when the pandemic hit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think even those tour operators who have been <laughs> operating throughout the pandemic um, and before the pandemic as well, it is very hard to make any kind of comparisons, right? What would you use 2019 as a point of reference, 2021, 2022, whatever you use, use the data. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a brave decision to start. So like you just mentioned, I mean, I originally came across you um, through the work that Tripseed was doing to make travel accessible um, through modified tuk-tuks. I'd read some article, I think you were featured in TTG Asia, I think, all about these modified tuk-tuks that you've done that allowed um, travelers even in wheelchairs to be able to experience Bangkok and I found that absolutely fascinating. I know that you're not from that background um, around accessible travel originally so how did you come up with that niche? Why Why did you you, you think that that might have something there? Um, I, I think it, it comes back to, to trying to identify areas in how we could differentiate and stand out within the current crop of DMCs um, as you know, it's a very saturated market, um, and I think I find there's very little differentiation between product and the, and the way businesses are hand managed. Um, so we were looking at, you know, aside from just trying to to treat people better and our employees better and things like that, you know, how do we actually stand out to our customers with things that they care about, with with product and and with our service? And, and I think it's the the accessible tuk tuks and, and the accessible travel in general. Um, I think it's something we kind of stumbled on a little by chance. Um, we'd actually been researching electric tuk-tuks um, to try and decrease our environmental footprint without relying too much on carbon offsets. Um, as we know, they only help so much. Um, and for us, it was really important to look at how we can actually minimize our carbon emissions at the source um, rather than just offsetting them. So it was actually through that research that we first came across these accessible tuk-tuks as they happen to also be electric. Um, and that kind of rang a few bells for us in terms of that being a really great idea. Um, so from there, we, we, we began to do a bit more research into accessible travel and saw that nobody was really tapping into this market. Um, there's a really good operator around Ayutthaya, uh, which is also run by Nutty's Adventures, who are a fantastic operator down there. Uh, but nobody was doing this at, at, a, at a sort of nationwide level across the whole country. And especially with the larger DMCs, there's there's no no accessibility built into the product ranges at all. You know, we decided it was something that, given the potential size and scope of that market, it was definitely something that it was worth experimenting with for us. Um, so we started learning everything we could about accessible travel, speaking to experts in the industry, speaking to travelers with disabilities to to try and identify what barriers they face. 
um, and, and really just trying to improve our knowledge in the area. And then we started looking at, at different regions in Thailand and what could be possible, you know, what isn't possible. And, and you just find this enormous lack of um, accessibility information. Uh, I mean, the, the best you can really find is sort of, um, you know, tick boxes on, on booking.com and things like that that says a hotel is wheelchair accessible. But there's there's absolutely no information that tells you, you know, uh, what, what is the, the toilet height? What is the height of the toilet seat? What is the width of the doorways? Is the shower a roll-in shower? Are there grab rails available? Um, and these are all questions that, you know, disabilities are so can be so different from each other. These are all questions that need answering for people that want to make an informed decision about how they travel. So we actually look towards um, Wheel the World, um, who are a fantastic organization, making some big changes to, to the ease of, uh, you know, making travel more accessible. And, and they've come up with this fantastic accessibility mapping system, um, which, uh, and, and we've sort of worked with them on, on adopting part of that, uh, not to segue too much, but, you know, another of these issues is where there is accessibility information available, there's no standardization across the industry. So everyone's got things in different ways. So we tried to adapt um, Wheel the World's um, accessibility mapping system so that we could at least be part of the solution and not part of the problem in, you know, uh, you know, making our data accord to some kind of standards. We had to make a few adaptions just to make that more suitable to the DMC industry, you know, the DMC business model. Um, and, and then it was really a case of just trying to complete audits with as many properties and as many locations as possible. This was kind of good in the sense that, you know, we started doing this last year when, um, before Thailand had even opened up properly again. Uh, and so we were able to put some, you know, tour guides were, were not getting much business. They, they, a lot of them were out of work. Um, so we were able to get some money into, into the hands of tour guides by sending them out to conduct these accessibility audits for them. Um, and it was, you know, it gave them some paid work to do while the country was still closed. Um, so it killed a few birds with one with, with one stone, and, and we've start, we're still going through collecting these audits, um, and and that's going to take a lot of time um, to really cover everything. But we've now got um, a, a nice range of, of you know locations that we can visit, activities that we can do. So we've developed a range of tours um, to suit three. We, we focused on three core areas. The first being physical disabilities, so um, wheelchair bound travellers. Uh, and anyone who, who you know needs a walker or, or has some abilities and has some mobility support requirements, um, also the audio visual impairments. So for blind and deaf travellers, we've developed some itineraries um, that are that are suited to to giving them the best experience and the most uncompromising experience um, that they can have in Thailand. Um, the next step for us will be to look at invisible disabilities, and, and these are, these are sort of cognitive uh, disabilities. And we've had, uh, we've actually seen a lot of demand in this area, um, in particular, which is why why we want to work towards it. Um, but that's something we've still got a lot of a lot of learning to do ourselves, and um, before we can confidently go out to market with something. So, expect that you know in the future, but I, I can't say when that will happen. Wow, I mean, it, it sounds like a huge amount of work, um, and you know, I, I I find it so um, admirable. I think to do this and. You were um, a guest on a webinar that I hosted with the ATTA last year, and we were having this whole debate, weren't we, with with the other panelists about accessible travel, and and we were having this conversation with um, Jezza Williams, and he was just saying it's all about being a good host. 
isn't it? And I think a lot of DMCs and destinations have this block in their head when they're thinking about um, accessible travel and they're thinking, oh, this is very expensive. Um, but actually, it's just about giving that information. Did you find it to be an expensive process to go through? It sounds like a lot of uh, research on the ground, but how about in terms of, is there a lot of outlay if other DMCs are thinking, oh, this sounds kind of interesting, but um, I'm worried about the overheads. What would you say to them? Um, in some sense, yes, and in some sense, no. Um, in, in terms of day-to-day operating, um, it's absolutely not more expensive than, than normal you know, tour operations. Um, there are some costs and time commitments in terms of doing the legwork and carrying out those accessibility audits, identifying new local suppliers who are tackling accessibility around the country, um, and things like that. But beyond those sort of initial costs, um, it, it's really not dif- really not much different to the cost of other operations. Um, the exception is, is really where there's not any accessible or, or adapted product available, um, especially when it comes to vehicles. Because then you've got to move, especially with vehicles, because then you've got to move them from other parts of the country um, if you want to operate in certain regions. So for the north of Thailand, for example, um, we don't have accessible um, vans available. So if, if someone want, if, if a traveler with a, a disability that requires an, an adapted vehicle uh, wants to come up to Chiang Mai, we have to bring that vehicle up from uh, Bangkok. So that can add to the cost. Um, but again, that's, that's, that's cost of trip. Um, and while it's unfortunate, there are it, it's simply a supply issue, and there are simple enough solutions to this, um, which is to 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 buy a vehicle um, and and start operating it up here, um, so that we don't have to bring one from Bangkok, and and that you know that's going to require a certain amount of investment and outlay, um, and, and to justify that cost and that investment, you know we've got to see that level of demand um, that that will justify it first. Um, but it's, I think it's a simple enough solution and something that, you know, time will tell if, if the demand is there or not. Uh, and that's really why, what we're trying to experiment with and why we've gone out to market with, it, with a few itineraries and a few activities to see, you know, is, is there a demand for um, accessible travel in Thailand? Yep. And I would imagine there is, right? Thailand being one of the most popular destinations in the world and the number of people who need travel to be modified in some way kind of growing exponentially as well. So I think you're definitely onto something there. I think the difficult thing from a DMC perspective is because we're so reliant on our trade partners to go out to market with this stuff that the initial demand that we've seen for accessible travel has actually come through from from direct clients um, rather than rather than the travel trade. Um, and that that's you know that that's something we've got to look at, at how we can encourage more um, trade partners to Start advertising um, accessible travel. There are some some accessibility um, specialist um, companies, but you know many of them don't yet offer Thailand. So we're, we're you know we're looking at working with a few of those um, to offer Thailand as a destination for them. But it's a much longer and much more drawn out process from the B two B perspective and getting things out to market than it is if we were to just go straight out to to direct clients. That's interesting. And I think that's it's similar again. You know, I'll, I'll go back to this this webinar that we did and I'll, I'll drop a link there if anybody um, wants to go and check it out. It's in the show notes. Um, but one of the issues that I think a lot of the panelists were talking about was just that a lot of operators themselves are kind of uh, very nervous, I think, to talk about um, offering travel for disabilities and they're worried about being caught out and calling something accessible and it's not accessible. And I wonder if that's feeding into that that B2B 
yeah diff- difficulties that you're you're facing too what do you think I, I completely agree. And, and look, I'm, I'm the worst at this. I, I know there's certain ways we're, we're supposed to talk about something, like you're supposed to say um, travelers with disabilities rather than disabled travelers and things like that. And people, you know, that can put a lot of people off because you're thinking, hang on, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to make any mistakes. But the, at the end of the day, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all learning. We're all on the same journey. And, and the fact that we, we make an effort to try, I, I think, should mean more than um, the mistakes that we might make along the way as, as we're going through that process. Absolutely. So the other thing I wanted to um, ask you about was the Global Collective for Travel. So I saw that Tripseed have just joined it. Congrats. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about who they are and, and what they stand for? Yeah, so um, the Global Collective for Travel was um, set up by about three or four um, founding members, if I remember correctly, who had all previously worked with, um, you know, big, big DMCs around the world. And uh, essentially what, what, what they found was it's really difficult um, as a small DMC to compete against the larger players. Because, um, you know, the big guys have been established for you know, 25 years or more um, in most cases. And, and, you know, they've got their established markets. And it's tough to sort of... Um, tap into that ground. I mean, one of the things that's helped us all is the pandemic. I, you know, if we look at silver linings, um, it has given an entry point into into being a little more competitive um, where the larger players have sort of, you know, their service levels have taken a hit. The the travel trade have been more open to, to looking at um, other operators that might be able to service them better. So the collective kind of came about from this idea that, um, you know, now's the right time where small DMCs can um, be more competitive against the against the established players, um, and we can do business differently. And, and you know, all I think everyone, all the members of the Global Collective for Travel are majority locally owned DMCs. Um, so it's it's again ensuring that that it's it's local voices are the ones that are being heard, um, and and making sure that as much of that revenue and profit gets back into the destinations as possible. I, I think there's a huge amount of, of possibility for. Uh, transformational change in this area. Tourism is is great. I love I love travel and tourism, um, but it, it's not without issues. You know, take over tourism for example. There can be a lot of profiteering in the industry, um, especially from the big multinationals that that are very very profit focused. I mean, their businesses they have to be. So you, you can't really blame them for that, but it, it can lead to a sort of a, a lack of. Um, care for what's actually happening on the ground and, and they can be a little out of touch um, with with how things are being done on the ground and, and so I think that there's a lot of room here for smaller players to really take the lead on um, tackling things like over tourism making sure um, local communities are seeing the benefit of travelers visiting um, and that it's not just being uh, you know a purely extractive model just trying to find a better way forward really I love that. And I think one of the other members of uh, the Global Collective for Travel is uh, Secret Paradise Maldives, right, with Ruth uh, Franklin. Yes, Ruth has just joined uh, about the same time as us. Yeah, yeah and she she was on the podcast hmm, maybe a couple of years ago, actually, I think. So, yeah, it's, it's nice to see uh, our interviewees popping up in different places um, as well. But, you know, and I think this also harks back to we had a conversation with Karen Yue uh, from TTG Asia last week and we were talking about how should you measure travel and 
target setting is always coming up. And she made the point that really leisure travel should take a page out of uh, business travel and business events. Um, and when business events talk about getting events, they talk about that global economic impact, the legacies that they have. And she said, well, why doesn't leisure travel measure its success, you know, in terms of increased literacy rates or improved livelihoods um, rather than a, a simple number? And it it sounds like this this resonates, I think, a lot with what the Global Collective for Travel are aiming for then. Um, absolutely. And I, I love that that concept. Um, I, I suppose, you know, how, how we get there is is the bigger question. And, you know, how, how feasible is that? Every de- destination is different and they all come with their own different problems um, and their own different benefits as well. So th- there's a lot. I think, I think one of the biggest benefits of the Global Collective is there's a lot that we can all learn from each other um, in, in the differences between our destinations and the issues that we face and things like that. I think being able to measure, you know, the actual impact of tourism, it's going to take a little longer to get there, in all honesty. You know, we, we've been looking at measuring economic leakage recently, uh, and especially being a smaller player, you know, you have limited capacity, you have limited bandwidth, um, if you actually want to build a business at the same time. Um, and, and so, you know, we've we've had to scale back our ambition on, on measuring economic leakage um, simply because you, when you get into the details of it and you start looking at import leakage and things like that, and you know what what soaps are the hotels using, the properties using in the in the bathrooms? What what sort of where are they getting their food from for the restaurants? Are they importing that, um, or is that is that from locally grown produce? You can get so deep into the details that you just don't have time to do it as a smaller business, and, and you know that's when that's where the bigger businesses could really make a difference because they have the bandwidth, they have sustainability coordinators um, and things like that that can look into these, these aspects and have, have more time to apply to it. But, you know, again, I, I don't think the motivation is there, there for them at this time. Um, it, it, it's a difficult one. I, I think it's going to take some time to measure the impact of tourism accurately. For sure. Yeah, I think there's there's no magic bullet. And like you say, there's the smaller guys have the issue that they're small and the larger guys have a, not always, but sometimes a, a different focus as well. Um, so that kind of leads us on to, to greenwashing. And, you know, more companies are starting to promote themselves as sustainable without really necessarily being so. Um, what's your take on regulation? Do you think that that's a workable solution to the greenwashing dilemma for the tourism industry? I think there's a lot of regulation um, already in place, uh, you know, such as, you know, there's regulation to tackle local ownership and, and the fact that some of these multinational businesses are using um, local nominee shareholders um, to position themselves as, as locally owned businesses and, and avoid paying the, the, the sort of avoid getting the foreign business licenses and, and paying the additional taxes. And um, so I think the regulation is already there, but it's, it, it, I think the, the problem is a lack of enforcement of it. If we look at greenwashing specifically, then yes, perhaps there could be more um, regulation or, you know, certifications are coming left, right and center these days. You've got B Corp, you've got Travel Life, you've, uh, you know, could it be those that, that sort of regulate how their auditing company is better um, rather than having to be regulated by, you know, a, a governmental authority or something like that? Um, I think that might ha- provide more value and, and more of a direct impact. Um, than any sort of uh, any sort of government level regulation, which which is rarely enforced. 
And one of my last questions for you then is, you know, Thailand came out the other week and <laughs> set this target of 80 million tourists by 2027. Um, now, given that the most that they've ever had is about 39 million, how do you as a tour operator, you know, particularly putting sustainability and ethics at the heart of what you do, um, see that really playing out um, versus Thailand's also this goal of positioning itself as a sustainable destination? Um, I don't see that as, as realistic at all. Um, that said, you know, I think there's there's a space. Um, there's definitely a space to operate sustainably um, aside from those goals. Um, there's always going to be a market uh, for travelers who, who want to um, ha- make less of an impact when they travel um, and, and have more sustainable journeys. And, and you know, that's, that's going to be our, our focus going forwards. You know, I, I don't think the goal of 80 million tourists is... is can can realistically be sustainable um, without just veering completely towards mass market tourism, which which is fine, and, and and of course there's a huge market for that too. And if 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 that's the direction that that some companies want to go and want to target, um, you know, all power to them. But that's not not what we want to to go into, and and it's not what we we intend to position ourselves as. And my last question for you then. Um... What do you see challenges being for 2023 for tour operators? What are you going to face this year? Um, I think the key. I think one of the key problems is going to be recruitment and retention for businesses. And you know, we talked earlier about this this sort of um, brain drain. You know, I, I think that's that's one of the biggest hindrances that companies are facing now, and I think that's going to carry on through the year because there was a lot of a lot of stuff that happened during the pandemic that that's kind of keeping a lot of people from coming back to the tourism industry mm. it's all over linkedin and and on some of the podcasts um, that i've listened to you can hear about these um forced waivers that that staff were forced to sign that basically removed all of their rights to get any severance pay when they were let go from companies so a lot of people felt quite betrayed um, a lot of local employees a lot of local employees felt quite betrayed during the pandemic and, and some of the things that went on there. So I think it's going to be very difficult to get in experienced and qualified employees. It, 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 I think businesses are going to have to focus on getting new grads and training them up. And, and that's going to take a lot of time. Um, and then making sure that, you know, we don't make the same mistakes as the past as well um, so that we can actually keep that talent and, and start building up that skill base again. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I think that's, it's really like you said, not only for tour operators, but pretty much every aspect of the industry right now is how do you find the people? How do you keep them? How do you get that confidence back in in the industry itself? So that brings us to a close of the show for this week. Thanks so much, Ewan, um, for coming on. I think it's been a really fascinating um, conversation. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's fallback catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com, and you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. Gary and I will both be back next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia and beyond. 